I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation. And um, as some of you may know, we've been uh, kind of self-funding the video and podcast of this series for the past year. Um, but an interesting story that happened is that uh, uh, about three years ago, our own developer recommended this payment uh, system called Stripe to do all of our membership and all of our donations through. And we switched it over, and it's been fantastic, and it saved us lots of time and, and money. Um, and then what we didn't know is that Patrick and John Collison, the founders of Stripe, have been coming to these events uh, unbeknownst to us, and then we got to know them. And through that relationship, uh, they've decided to sponsor the podcast and video uh, for the series, uh, as well as the interval. And so we wanted to welcome them to the community and uh, thank them for all their uh, support. Thank you. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Our speaker tonight um, comes all the way from the University of York in England, thanks to the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, he's participating in Breakthrough Dialogue in the next three days across the bridge at Kavala Point. Breakthrough, I'm on the board of it. They are basically trying to invent uh, the next century of how environmentalism can be more realistic. And uh, our speaker is speaking of that because he is exceptional on bringing realism. I've been hearing about him for a long time. And then finally, at the age of, how old are you, Chris? I refuse to say. <laughs> he refuses to say, but this is his first book. And it's an accomplished piece of work. The quality of the writing is true and good to the, to the comma. You can sort of tell how much I like a book by how much it's dog-eared. And I think this is the closest we've gotten to ground truth of what's going on with basically the natural world that we've had since Darwin. Um, Chris Thomas, our speaker, really goes to the functional dynamics as well as the ground truth of what's happening. Uh, this reflects a lifetime of research by him, much of it in the field, much of it doing scholarship, much of it traveling to visit the various other field biologists who are doing the work to get a sense of what's really happening out there and looking at it from an evolutionary perspective, which is the right, long now, frame of reference. Chris Thomas. Well, thank you, Stuart, and thank you uh, for the invitation to be here, which is wonderful, and thank you, the audience, for coming here. Well, after that set up, I'm sorry, you might as well go now because it's going to be a disappointment to you. What I want to do is effectively to ask this question. And I think the question is a reasonable one for us to ask. We're changing the world in huge ways. Every way you look at it, things are dying out. We know that. Environmental doom is close in front of us. And I'm not going to deny the many harms and things that are going wrong on this planet from a biological perspective and 
the common sense for humans to try and reduce the rate at which we change certain aspects of the planet and so that we live in a world that not only can sustain the human population but is actually a planet that we want to live on. But it is also worth asking of all of these changes that we're wreaking to the planet right now is what species are taking advantage of these changes? Is it generating new diversity at the same time as it is causing losses? What are the processes underpinning this? And what might be the long-term view? So the Long Now Institute likes to put a zero in front of its dates, thinking long-term thinking. Ha! Nothing. At least several zeros are required. We really need to think long-term when we go to the biological world because it's been running for billions of years now and we're just a recent invention of it. We need to think, what are we doing to this planet and where might it be heading in the future? So, that's my question. But first, let's, let's start with some doom and gloom because that makes every environmentalist feel deeply good inside. <laughs> if we look at the last uh, half billion years, 500 million years, not very long in terms of the history of life on Earth, but most of the big things like us, well, or not quite so much like us, but I'm thinking of trilobites as being a bit like us, uh, were in, ex have been in existence for this time period. So we've seen these so-called big five mass extinctions. So there's time running on the bottom axis there and on the y-axis going up there, we've got the number of families. Paleontologists, the fossil folk, like to look at numbers of families that have been in existence, partly because fossils are not fossilised, that things aren't fossilised that regularly, so most of the species that exist it have never left a fossil behind at all, or at least not one that has been discovered. And partly if you've got a bit of a fragment of an animal, you can probably tell what family it's in, but not necessarily what species. So they tend to count families. So those big um, arrows going down are when there have been big diebacks in the history of life, the so-called big five mass extinctions, and there have also been lots of mini ones. A big five represents about 75% or more in some cases, up to about 95% of species dying out in one relatively short period. But a short period might be 100,000 years or a million years, but, uh, but relatively brief in terms of this total history. And the question is then, are we doing the same now? If we look at birds, it might be mainly from species living on oceanic islands. For birds, we might already have got up to about 10% of species having died out already. Two-thirds of them before about 1500. So extinction caused by humanity is not just a recent thing of the technological ape that we've become in the last century or two, but has been going back quite a long time. And the question mark there is, are we coming for a big mass extinction? And this wonderful book by Betsy Colbert, I would strongly recommend, The Sixth Extinction, outlines some of the key driving factors which might be uh, at risk of exterminating species on this planet. 
And there is no doubt whatsoever that the current rate of extinction is high by on a geological timescale. Things are dying out faster than normal. If you extrapolate the current rate, somewhere from a few thousand years to a few tens of thousands of years in the future, we could end up with one of these mass extinctions. I don't think we're going to get there, partly because we, as the current generation of humans, think this is not the way we really want the future of the planet to be, and partly because nature is proving to be slightly more resilient than some pessimists are suggesting. But what I'm not going to do is to argue about the many declines that are taking place. Declines can happen of some things, and simultaneously, increases of other things can take place. It's worth reminding ourselves in the long history of life on Earth over the last few billion years that, on average, the diversification process by which one type of thing, or one species, if you like, turns into two or more different species, that, on average, the very fact that there's however many millions of species there are on the planet is because, on average, the rate of splitting into two or more entities has slightly exceeded the rate at which the previous entities died out. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this diversity that we have today. And so uh, we've got the bacteria on the left-hand side there, the archaea that live, uh, the things at the top, which uh, to most humans we think they're the similar sorts of things, but they're very, very unrelated. And then we've got um, on the right-hand side the so-called eukaryotes, which is most of the organisms that we are familiar with, including uh, just a little sort of pinprick on the edge of life on Earth are the large multicellular things like plants and animals that we recognize. And although I have put my favorite picture of coates uh, up there, of course, most animals, I'm an entomologist, I should add, and of course, most uh, terrestrial animals, at least are insects, much more important. So, I ask again, are we in line for a six-mass origination. So we're definitely causing an, ex an acceleration of the extinction rate. No one doubts that. But after the previous mass extinctions, what you've seen is this growth in biological diversity again. No one knows for these geological time periods what the true time lag of the restoration of diversity has really been. Because if your units are families like... Um, like a swallowtail butterfly is in one family, a monarch is in another butterfly family. Well, these things that are as distinct as that, oh, if to you lot, they're probably all butterflies, but I can assure you they're quite different. <laughs> um, but two families, this can take tens of millions of years before one species that splits into two, that the descendants of these two species are so dissimilar that they rank as different biological families. And so this it appears to take a long time for diversity to be restored. But we have the huge privilege of the moment, as well as the sadness, of living through at least a mini-mass extinction. And we can ask the question whether origination accelerates during the period of speciation rather than simply lagging after it. So is this happening? Well, 
I'm going to divide this into two sections. It's not just that I'm sunburnt. I think um, I think I slightly recolored the picture because the grey York skies were um, <coughs> were not very attractive. Anyway, so when I was a child, so what I want to do is to consider first of all the growth in ecological diversity, and then later on in the talk go on to how that changes and increases in some instances of ecological diversity. In the end is going to turn out to generate large numbers of additional species on this planet. So here, when I was a child, my mother was not very amused when I tried to dig a hole to Australia. She thought it was, um, we didn't have a very large lawn at the time, and she thought that it was unnecessary to devote quite such a large um, part of it to this experiment. <laughs> However, as a 50-something, I'm admitting it now, as a 50-something uh, academic, I decided I'd go on a much, more, a much easier adventure and visit the Ice Age. And so this is exactly what I did. And unfortunately, I have a field, um, which is a sort of wildlife meadow, if, but this is in early spring before it started to grow up. And so I decided to dig a hole. And you can see the different layers of soil that I uncovered. And this reveals the first thing that I think is really critically important about biological life on our planet. It survives and lives where it is possible for it to live at a particular time. The di processes of ecology as well as evolution are dynamic. And over the last 20,000 years, which to me at least nowadays seems like a very short period, is that the biological world has turned on its head time and time again. Now, I'm really lucky to have these geological deposits in my field. So at the bottom there, you see Ice Age Lake Clays. So 15 to 20,000 years ago, we were at the heights of the last Ice Age. There was the, um, in fact, the city of York is uh, built on the gravels at the end of the glaciers that were at the time over large parts of northern uh, England and spread the whole way up to towards the North Pole. So there was this Ice Age lake, and that's an Arctic char there. This is the sort of environment. And you find, although the species don't live in this area any longer, they all still survive, but in the Arctic. Then there was a great big whoosh when the water drained out of this lake. It was held in by a huge glacier that um, blocked off the melting ice, and it formed this pool in what is the Vale of York, this enormous pool of uh, a lake. When that drained, it exposed not only the clays, but also lots of sand um, and silts. And in this ensuing quite cold few thousand years, so about 12,000 years ago, there were actually sand dunes in this system as the uh, sands that had been deposited by the melting glaciers and rivers piled up into a dune system. It was a bit like a sort of prairie, very cold in winter and at least a bit warmer in the summer. This thing was grazed by mammoths and rhinoceros. And I still find it amazing to think when I stand on my land, as I occasionally do, and I try and think through time in the very place that I live, to think that just 12,000 years ago, 
yes, there really were rhinoceros here. I mean, just amazing. Um, most of the inhabitants of York are not particularly interested in the fact there were rhinoceros um, 12,000 years ago. But to me, it's quite incredible because it indicates how much the biological world has changed in such a short period. So then, about 11, starting about 11,500 years ago, the climate warming really kicked in at, for the end of the last ice age, and then this has led to the last 10,000 years of quite warm conditions, the so-called Holocene period. During this, first of all, forest established, then uh, some of my ancestors perhaps started clearing it, producing agricultural fields, and these had lots of poppies and cornflowers and all sorts of other arable weeds, um, and then there were lots of birds that fed on the seeds, both of the crops and of the, um, the weed seeds. Of course, now conservation agencies are running around the place trying to make sure that the last few meadows that have got these wildflowers and the so-called declining farmland birds are protected. They are only present, however, in this area because of previous human management of the land. And now it's a horse pasture and, if you like, my own private nature reserve. Each of those arrows corresponds, yes, to the exportation, ex, um, extirpation, the loss of populations of species that were there previously. But each time a new ecosystem came into existence comprised of species that have moved in from elsewhere. And as time went on, an increasing fraction of these species that arrived had something to do with humans. All of the species living in the farmland and the human-modified landscapes were able to move into these new landscapes because of the habitats created by humans, not in spite of them. So, two messages. Even when biological processes are happening completely naturally, the species you find in a biological community or ecosystem at any one time are a temporary compilation of species. And as time has gone on, an increasing fraction of those changes are caused by humans rather than what some people might regard as natural processes, although I consider the impacts of humans to be natural, of course, because we evolved and we're part of the natural biological system. And this isn't just a oh, quaint old British human-modified thing. It's increasingly appreciated how much the um, earlier human population in North America modified the landscape, first of all by exterminating the largest mammals, and um, then by, for example, manipulating fire. And it's going on today. Uh, yesterday, I was enjoying um, making a terrible video of Anna, Anna's hummingbirds, which are only present in the San Francisco area, I understand, because you guys have so kindly planted lots of flowering plants, which is lots of nectar supply, and so they have moved northwards into this new habitat that you have created. Uh, this is just going on all over the planet. Species are taking advantage of new environments created by humans. It's not that suddenly... that. There was this nature that was just so, that didn't change, we can see how it changed, and that humans have then completely destroyed that. What's actually happened is that we have added new layers of modification with lots of species taking advantage of these modifications just as others are declining. So what we end up having is, if we think back to a sort of pre-human system, is that we would have, in any particular region, 
We've got species that are arriving, for example, at the end of the last ice age when the climate changed. Lots of the species that would come in would be attached to large uh, animals, for example, that would be moving across a continent. And as those animals, for example, beavers coming in, might modify the environment and make habitats for other species, so they spread. So this is a sort of story that would apply equally 10 million years ago, that there's a various processes that are leading to species arriving in an area, then all those species that have arrived, they interact with one another to generate novel biological communities, and as a result of that, some of those species that occurred in the region previously die out. But it is this dynamic process, when seen on timescales of centuries to millennia and longer, it is this dynamic change that gives us all of the ecosystems that we currently uh, enjoy and prize. And biological gains continue, this arrival of new species, in fact, Arguably, the arrival of new species at new locations um, is probably the fastest that it has um, ever been, actually, on, in the history of life on the land, at least. And so what we need to think about is, in any particular place we live, what are the processes giving rise to these new biological assemblages and all the diversity that we see in front of us? So the local level, by which I might mean in a, uh, a patch of a few uh, acres, for example, um, is there going to be the birth and death of individuals, which are obviously uh, dynamic processes, and the arrivals of individuals and departures of them that determine how many species are present and what the diversity is. In a region, it's going to be how many species arrive and colonize the region, how many die out that are extirpated, even though the species still survive elsewhere. And in, that, in my garden hole, almost all the species that ever lived there, there's a few exceptions, the large uh, mammoths that we hunted to extinction, for example, but virtually all of the species that were there now that no longer do, they live somewhere else instead. And so that's colonization, extinction, and extirpation at a regional level. And then at global levels, we've got speciation and extinction. And it's the balance of these things that determines the diversity. So what I'm going to concentrate on now is changes in regional diversity, by which I mean, um, well, almost anything that you could consider, some a landscape, so it could be the Bay Area, for example, uh, it could be a county or um, uh, an island like, um, or an, an archipelago like the Hawaiian Islands. So the puzzling thing is, and Dov Sachs um, is, has been really influential in this work, putting together data that illustrates this very nicely, is... The extraordinary thing is that when you do this, and the best data is for plants, you find that most regions, as far as we know, now contain more species than they used to a few centuries ago. And almost all of that changes to do with humans. So if we look at the axis, at uh, the, uh, the, the graph, the panel on the right-hand side, the, um, the bottom axis is the number of species before human influence, number of species of plant, and um, on the axis going up, the y-axis, we've got the current species richness, the number of species. And, you could, and the line is the one-to-one -one line. 
And although some of them are very close to the one-to-one -one line, each region where the black circles are mainly European countries or other European regions, the circles are pretty much all American states, they're all above the one-to-one -one line. That is to say, states now contain more species of plant than they used to. That doesn't stop you trying to exterminate them. You call them invasive and you're horrible things. But that's but but if we just but I'm a biologist and I, I don't find it very easy to value species by um, some prior opinion of whether I ought to like them or not. And based on that, we've actually got more species in California of plant at least in California than we used to. We've got more species of mammal in California than we used to as well. Goes for snails as well. You'll be pleased to know. Oceanic Island, so that's about, for those continental regions, it's about 20% higher. Um, for Oceanic Islands, it's now on a logarithmic scale because, uh, for various reasons, but those blue circles, it's actually, uh, most Pacific Islands in particular have got about double the number of plant species they used to. Some plant species that were, did exist on those islands have now died out, and some of those are global extinctions, and therefore we would, might be concerned about them, but if we're just counting how many species species are there on each uh, island, which we might imagine could be related to the ecological resilience of the systems now, then the number of plant species has empirically doubled. And even the people who hate invasive species the most accept that that is true. And Dan Simbolov, he absolutely hates anything foreign. Um, <coughs> um, I'm sure he doesn't really. Um, he's probably got a lovely garden full of... I have no idea what his garden's like. But, <laughs> but if you look at those circles for Europe, the open circles, this is from 1200 to the year 2000 and a little bit. This is the number of non-native mammal species that have established wild populations in Europe. And when we're just, I can assure you, I can happily tell you we're just as prejudiced as Americans. Um, and um, we're trying to exterminate some of them as well. And the New Zealanders, the black triangles, they really are quite good at it. And they've uh, abandoned, they have got very strict import rules and they've exterminated one or two. So uh, in New Zealand, the number of mammal species was increasing very rapidly and, and now it's leveled off. But we've got all these new mammals over. 80 species of mammal in Europe now that used not to occur there. And as far as anyone knows, no native species of mammal has died out from Europe over the same period. We've had a net increase in the number of species. So this is not a kind of biological, at least at a state, country level, or even continent level, this is not the biological meltdown of the system's diversity that we are sometimes led to believe. Of course, many of the species we really care about, and both for sort of cultural reasons and because we think they provide ecosystem services. But if a species is we deem a species to be native, and it's common and widespread. Our language tends to go to the value they are to ecosystem processes, their cultural value, um, and why um, their decline, for example, might be so important to maintaining the biological systems of any particular region. 
But the moment any non-native species becomes common and widespread, then, of course, we talk about how it changes ecosystems, how it is deleterious. So I give you the house sparrow, which started off in Western Asia. It colonized areas. It colonized um, probably the first agricultural areas in the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, spread into Europe with the development of agriculture, and no one really knows, a few thousand years ago, would have turned up in the United Kingdom. It was long enough ago, and because... So we treat it as a native species, but the number of sparrow species in Britain in the absence of human agriculture and human towns and so on would be zero. But it's been there long enough, and it's been declining a bit over the last few decades, so we put it on the UK red list of threatened species. And we love them, and we, we, you, can buy, you can get bricks that you can put in the side of your wall, so that, of your house, so that um, they can nest inside the holes of them. Um, you can buy beetle larvae, um, uh, mealworms that you can put out in winters, and, and indeed even during the summer, so they can feed uh, their chicks on them, because their people are worried that they haven't got enough insect food any longer. Well, feeding on insect food, of course, was part of the reason that they were introduced to North America, um, because it was entirely fallacious, but an argument that they would control outbreaks of moths in New York. They didn't, but they established and spread right across North America. And since that is more recent, you can buy, people don't, well, people have mixed opinions of house sparrows, let's just put it that way. The bluebird societies um, absolutely hate them because every so often a nasty foreign English, I, why do they get called English sparrows? They, well, I might just leave now. Um, so you can buy traps, in fact, a repeat traps that will kill successive catch successive sparrows um, in North America. And although some individuals living in cities like sparrows in North America, the official line is that they are a negative influence. And the, as I said, the Bluebird Society take a particularly strong view, even though there's no evidence whatsoever, not a shred of it, I've looked at the data, um, that uh, how sparrows are actually driving uh, mainly eastern bluebird populations down. Actually, eastern bluebird populations are increasing because humans have opened up more of the landscape, um, and house sparrows are actually declining slightly. But this species is not pre-human. This species didn't occur in either of these regions. And it is entirely in our little brains that we are distinguishing between them. It's, there's no scientific grounds for thinking that one is a good thing in one place and a bad thing in another. So, faced with all of this new biological diversity, this is, puts us in a very difficult situation. So just to summarise this part of the talk, that regional diversity has increased for most parts of the world that we know of. For plants, that's almost everywhere, or certainly, it actually, pretty much is everywhere where there's good data. Of course, if you go into the Central Valley, into an area of almond, um, you can find a few square miles of um, almond orchards where clearly the number of species is considerably lower than it used to be. But 
at larger areas, like the whole area of California, the reverse is actually true. For vertebrates, where well, we have data again, they're not complete, it's also true that most countries and most islands now have more species of terrestrial vertebrate than they used to before we turned up. Insects, we don't know the answer for almost anywhere in the world, but at least over the last few decades, the United Kingdom has been gaining species faster than it's been losing them. Oh, actually, sorry, I'll just go back to that and say this. The picture here is, um, this is the... I, I really couldn't believe it, I, because I'm because I'm so trained, as everyone is, to have this deep belief in diversity decline everywhere, I decided to go to the Atlantic forest area of Brazil, which has a higher number of red-listed vertebrate species, I think, than pretty much any region in the world. Madagascar might uh, rank alongside it. And there's two species of bird that are very close to extinction. One of them is a kind of curassow, which is extinct in the wild, though it still exists as a sort of, uh, sort of semi-wild population. Um, and there's another very small bird that hasn't been seen for quite a long time, although it went nearly 100 years between sightings last time, so it may still exist. So when the forest has been cleared, 93% of the forest has been cleared, there's a bunch of species that have declined quite clearly, and some that are endangered, and some that have died out, and some that will die out. So this is a real issue. But if you're just counting birds, the cleared land has then allowed many additional species to move in. So on the left-hand side there, you've got the cattle tyrant that presumably used to follow South American megafauna around. And they don't live in forest. They only live in sort of quite open habitats. And you can see one on top of the horse's back and another one on the ground. So this is a South American species that moved into the open areas. And then we've got the colonists with the cattle egret on the right-hand side, which are there in very large numbers. Then the burrowing owls have um, moved in, and various other species have. So even there, the region of the original Atlantic forest, now in total, because it's still got some forest that holds most, but not all, of the original species. And now we've got a whole series of human-modified habitats that's not just grasslands, it's also um, suburban and urban areas that have got a, a number of additional species. The total number of species at that regional level has actually gone up. So this is puzzling. This is really important, though, because if the average diversity per region has gone up, this means that there are potential long-term evolutionary consequences because each of the populations in those new regions has the potential to evolve. So what we're now seeing is that humans have become a key process in introducing species to new areas, modifying habitats that allows new sets of species to move into areas where they couldn't live before, and then species, most of my research actually is on species responding to climate change, and species are expanding their ranges into new areas associated with the changing climate. And these are again producing new regional biological communities that evolve and co-evolve in relation to the physical environment and one another. So this is just the same picture we had before, if you like, the, pre, the previous one was the, if you like, the pre-human version. 
The human version is simply that we're adding extra inputs to the system as well as extra extirpations and disappearances. And I've drawn the arrows for the arrival of species deliberately bigger than the disappearance because the empirical evidence is that the number of species per region is going up, not down. This all comes to an extraordinary biological pileup that we're moving more and more species to more and more locations where they are then evolving. In fact, if we were to exterminate every one of us instantly today, the one real thing that once all the cities have disappeared under vegetation and um, our agriculture is no longer observable, etc., the one change that's really long-term to the planet that we've already achieved is to move probably tens of thousands, arguably as many as 100,000 or so, species to new parts of the world where they didn't used to exist. And they will leave descendants in those new parts of the world that are eventually going to new lead to the new biological world in exactly the same way that the North American camels moved into South America when the two, South America and North America, were joined by the Isthmus of Panama, and so the Vicuña um, <coughs> um, um, and the South American camelids, of which there are several extinct species, um, that they came into existence when they moved into the new continent. And eventually, this might be the signature of um, diversification following humans. So, Pangaea was the supercontinent that lived, last existed, what, about 250 million years or so ago that split up into the continents that we currently recognise. Even when Pangaea existed as one supercontinent, it had a lot of deserts in it. If you think of Europe and Asia, which obviously one, um, so it's just semantics that we treat them as different uh, continents. Of course, it's one continent. But they've got uh, lots of deserts and cold areas that are extremely cold during the winter in Central Asia. And so large numbers of the species in, in uh, Western Europe, for example, are different from the species in Eastern Asia, even though they might be sort of quite close relatives to one another. Well, the same would have been true in Pangaea. It wouldn't have been a, a region of the world, or it, wouldn't, it was the world, effectively. It, it wouldn't have been that easy for a species to move from one end of the continent to another. But what we're doing is we're picking up the planet's species and gradually, arguably, over a period as short, of a short as a couple of thousand years, is removing the historical biogeography of the planet. And the speciation process, if you think of something like the Galapagos Island, is that one species might arrive in two different islands and then evolve into different things on those two islands. And eventually, one of them moves back to the other island and they become different enough that they can live together. And this is sort of what we are now starting to do at a global scale. We've moved the species, lots of species to all sorts of continents already. There's those house sparrows are now on every continent and lots of oceanic islands. Eventually, we might come back and they've turned into different species in each location. Okay. 
that sounds great theoretically, but are we seeing this evolutionary response to humans kicking in? Well, first of all, we're seeing a lot of evolution within populations. Um, as we change the habitats around us, many species take advantage of that. Um, there's colonial populations of parakeets in northern Europe, which have now been developing larger, stronger beaks because they need to have strong beaks to eat seeds and nuts to get them through the winter, uh, many of those seeds and nuts being provided on people's bird tables. So here's an example from the western states um, of Taylor's checker spot. It's a very threatened subspecies of um, Euphidrius edither, the Edith's checker spot, um, which, um, um, which if, uh, used to occur at Jasper Ridge down the road. Um, now, Edith's checker spot, this is one subspecies of it, and this subspecies only appears to survive because the females now choose to lay their eggs on Plantago lancia later, which I should have added a picture of that. So that, that's a leaf of Plantago there. This is the plant that was known as white man's footprints because it cropped up in everywhere that humans took um, uh, Western European origin populations. They took bales of hay as fodder to North America. That had a lot of the farmland, um, the pasture plants, and then they spread across North America. Well, Edith Checker spot... Um, in some populations, has started to lay its eggs on this plant, which is now much more widespread than the plants that it historically used. And so population after population of species is adjusting to this new world. And this species, this subspecies in particular, would probably have gone extinct already had it not been for the fact that it has evolved an adaptation to a human-modified environment. In some cases, this appears to be leading to what's termed ecological speciation, where if you get a new environment come into existence, one of the existing species that was already in the region takes advantage of that new environment, becomes adapted to it, and eventually may become so specialised on the new environment that it's effectively become a new species. So here's a nice example that Jeff Feeder and his colleagues um, uh, worked on. Um, originally, I think, uh, Jeff Feeder was a student of Guy Bush's who probably started this work even before. And <clears throat> this is a nice example because we know when apple trees were introduced to North America, though it's, it's unclear when apple trees really became widespread. So most of this story has happened in the last one to 200 years. And the, although the earliest apple trees go back a, few more, a couple of centuries earlier, um, they weren't planted very widely until more recently. And this particular fly, those black lines incidentally, if you sort of squint your eyes, it almost looks like a spider. And so when they get attacked by something, they do this thing with their wings, and you can be, oh, this, is my, this is my equivalent of the bear rub, and they sort of wiggle their wings, and they look a bit like a sort of ferocious spider, and so the idea is that they put their predators off by doing this. Anyway, they used to um, lay their eggs, these flies, on the hawthorn berries, and the fly grubs would bury into the uh, hawthorns uh, and um, 
and develop, go through the whole life cycle associated with hawthorn trees. Now, the apple fly has evolved and has become, started to become genetically distinct, and I can go into uh, on ad nauseum about the ways it's become distinct, but effectively, it now has a life cycle that is completely associated with apple trees, and what's more, three parasitic wasps have also only attack the... Uh, the fly larvae that are inside the apples. So one plant species has arrived from Europe, and adaptations by North American insects to it mean that these four insects are now quite a long way down the pathway to becoming new species. Geneticists you talk to say, well, maybe they're new species, maybe they're not. But that was the whole point of Darwin and Wallace. Species don't just suddenly bang come into existence, so sometimes they do, as we'll see, they, uh, they gradually diverge, and so there's bound to be intermediate uh, cases. But if we took all of the genetic data, physiological data, behavioral data from these flies, and we didn't know that apples had been introduced to North America, then we would probably classify these four insects as separate species. So the new opportunities created by humans is generating, we're generating so many new environments across the planet that large numbers of species are starting to become adapted to them. And over time, centuries, millennia, tens of millennia, these things, if we continue to create these or maintain these environments, these things would turn into new species. But what we're really seeing, and the most distinctive new species that are coming into existence, are hybrids. Now, remember this thing, how we moved, lots of species have moved themselves into human-modified habitats, and how much we have moved species so that previously geographically separated things are now have the opportunity to mate with one another. Now, in the case of the house sparrow that is so vilified over here, but uh, loved in Western Europe, the house sparrow started off in Western Asia. It spread into the Mediterranean basin where it met the Spanish sparrow, which was the sparrow in existence. Well, they rather immodestly got it together, should we say, and, um, and they produced um, some hybrid offspring. And this turned into, we don't know, this was probably a few thousand years ago, and the thing in the middle that's got the brown head that comes from the Spanish sparrow, but uh, a few others of the markings that come from the house sparrow, this thing came into existence and is now a self-sustaining population. It's one of the very few species of bird, in fact, that we've got in Europe that people think is, is entirely geographically restricted to Europe. And so people like this, but th this is because we don't, it's been here around for a few thousand years. Interestingly, that when new hybridization events start to take place in the, over the last 50 to 100 years, our immediate reaction has been to try and exterminate the hybrids. Um, um, so you've got the lovely case of um, the beefalo, um, where you've got bison times uh, cattle uh, degree of hybridization, um, and people are trying to exterminate cattle genes from bison populations, blaming um, um, the overgrazing, for example, on the sort of hybrid form, when in fact the reason that hybrid, the overgrazing is going on is entirely because the bison can live in these hostile environments, not because of the cattle genes. 
So we have this situation, in, and so in, in Europe we've had the attempts, and it's not quite complete yet, to exterminate the North American ruddy duck because it is hybridizing with a European ancestor. Uh, it's a, a sister species in Europe called the white-headed duck. So had this hybridization event that's given rise to one of Europe's few special endemic species now, had this been happening now, we undoubtedly would have been trying to kill off the hybrids. Instead, we've got a new hybrid species that's come into existence. And all the genetic work suggests that this is now as good a species as any other bird species. Even the existence of one species or a small number of new species associated with humans that wouldn't have existed prior to us implies a slightly different relationship between us and nature. We're not just the destroyer. We are also, indirectly at least, a cause of new things coming into existence. And the story goes on, and particularly in plants. So this is a ragwort, species of ragwort, originating as a hybrid on, um, on Vesuvius. And it arrived in Britain, traveled around the railway network, which was a bit like sort of the gravels of railway tracks, or a little bit like um, volcanic um, um, <coughs> sort of uh, lava flows to colonize. And so this plant species has come into existence, spread around uh, Britain, and has then hybridized with a native species of Senecio, giving rise to at least a couple of additional daughter species, which are now genetically largely isolated from their parents. In fact, about seven, it doesn't sound like a vast number, but about seven new species have come in, of plant have come into existence in Britain through this event, this event of humans moving species from one part of the world to another, hybridization, genetic change subsequently, leading to a distinct new species. So top left, monkey flowers, mimulus, you're probably all familiar with them. Um, this part of the world has sort of got lots and lots of species of mimulus. But the historic species, so one of the parents came from South America, one came from North America. They met in Scotland. They also made friends. Um, they produced, though, but their offspring were a bit of a disappointment because they were entirely sterile. But being plants, they were able, actually, some of these plants were able to grow vegetatively, so they spread along stream sides in Scotland. And then one or two of these plants had a nasty genetic accident one day and doubled their chromosome number, and what had previously been a sterile form turned into a sexually reproducing species. So now we've got um, a couple of populations of monkey flower in Scotland that um, effectively are a new species. And because the chromosome number has doubled, they uh, can't reproduce with either parent any longer. They are a new species. Haven't been in existence for very long, but they are a new species. So we've got about seven species of this type in, in Britain that have arisen since 1700. I'm not going to try and explain the left-hand graph at the bottom, but using various molecular genetic methods, um, um, you can try and estimate what the historic rate of speciation were. Well, I, and then I've tried to do this for plants in Britain over the last 300 years, if you like, for the Anthropocene speciation rate. So don't worry what the axis is, but it's a logarithmic scale. So two units along there is a hundredfold difference in speciation rate. 
And in Britain, the plant speciation rate appears to be about 100 times faster than it seems to have been historically. Whether one call, considers the average across all plants, the black dots, or the most rapidly evolving uh, types of plant, which are the open circles. So the speciation rate appears to, have, to be higher than, and possibly historically unprecedented. Um, and over the same period, amazingly, in Europe, we only have um, documented, at least, I'm sure there must be some more, but then there'll be lots more new species that haven't been documented yet. We've only got one species of plant that's become extinct as an entire species over the same period. So bizarrely, Britain has contribution to the world over the last 300 years to be increase the net number of species in the planet. So at the very least, we can't ignore the speciation rate. But eventually, the tens to hundreds of thousands of species that we will end up spreading around the world are going to diverge into new species in their new homelands. And this is one of your favourites, the yellow star thistle. Um, well, some beekeepers like it because it's sometimes about the only thing that's got any nectar on it. And actually, the butterfly folk quite like it because of it. it's a good nectar source as well. Um, so, yellow star thistle uh, has already diverged and it's about 50% sterility when crossed, as uh, Daniel Montesinos and colleagues showed, that accidentally they. they it wasn't their, the purpose of their research. They just sort of found it out by crossing things for fun almost. And they found out that there's more or less 50% sterility already between the original European population and the Californian population of this plant. And, and this is just within 100 or so years. So as things evolve under local conditions and just diverge, eventually... You know, it might take many centuries before this process is complete, even millennia. But eventually, these species have been spread around the world in different locations are going to turn into new species. And this, in the long run, is likely to be the major cause of speciation. And by my back-of-envelope calculations, I admit that I reckon this is going to lead to at least a doubling of the number of species on the planet. So... It's at least worthy of asking the question of whether we are generating effectively a six-mass origination. It shouldn't be dismissed as a possibility. It doesn't mean that we stop caring about things that are declining, but that the rate at which new things are coming into existence is fast enough that it's, it's not a trivial thing we should ignore. And so much of the biological diversity that is around us, wherever we live, is stuff that's just arrived, and therefore we interact with it anyway, and we should be interested in those new ecosystems. So the global diversity change is a balance of gains and loss, and you can think of that as speciation and extinction. At the moment, almost certainly, the total extinction rate is higher than the total speciation rate. Um, certainly for animals, that seems almost certainly the case. But eventually, these lines are going to cross, and it's a question of when the speciation rate will, will be higher than the extinction rate. We don't know the answer to that. 
But what we do know is that we're living in this world of huge, ongoing change associated with human activities in which there are biological gains that are human-driven as well as losses. And the Anthropocene, if you like, or the Anthropocene, depending on your pronunciation preference, it is different. It is a new biological world. Calling it a new epoch helps highlight that. And we are part of this system. And we can't unpick it. We've just got to get used to it. We cannot unpick the human affected and the non-human affected. The CO2 in the atmosphere is absolutely everywhere. The pH of the ocean has changed. So we just can't say, go to any ecosystem and say, this is a human altered bit. This isn't. I'm going to fix it and turn it back into a non-changed system. It's, it's impossible. The other thing is that the human population is still growing, and um, whilst in my country, and dare I say it, yours, people are not short of nutrition, um, this still is the case for some parts of the world, and so the total food consumption of the planet is probably, by humans, is probably going to roughly double, and we need the production systems that are going to deliver that. And so we're going to continue to live with a world of change. We can't just sort of put our heads in the sand and hope that change is going to go away. And as the world does continue to change, we've got to stop treating nature like a sort of old master that we've got to restore back to some actually sort of rose-tinted imaginary system that might have, um, well, choose your date as to when your favourite period is. Um, this is what you might call ecological baseline thinking. What was the system here? How do we get back to it? So in this lovely case, this was a fresco. I think it was in an abbey or cathedral or church or somewhere in, in Spain, I think. And um, it was looking a bit tatty. So this very kind volunteer lady um, um, who's perhaps either their artistic skills were not so brilliant or their eyesight was slightly fading, um, but uh, they tried to restore it back to what it was, and it turned out not to be such a great idea. But, but we shouldn't imagine that nature... Nature is a dynamic thing of gains and losses. It's always been the case, and so we shouldn't imagine that nature was in some state that we've got to restore it to. In fact, if you think of a baseline, of any baseline, any date you were to choose, all biological gains, which we've seen through time, have continued on and again and again and again, all gains up to that time are considered good, and so are all losses up to that time, because that's the system at the time of the baseline. The moment the baseline date has passed, all change since there, gains and losses, are all considered bad because they are departures from that state. So we have to work and think, really embrace this idea we're working with a dynamic system and, it, and that no change is not an option that's on the table. It never actually was. And, but what we've got are choices about potential directions and rates of change. And then we have to think carefully about the extent to which we think new things, whether there are new species like Spartina anglica, um, whether these are somehow bad. Um, an American, a vigorous American species of Spartina was brought 
to Britain in the 1800s to try and stabilize um, some of the uh, marshland on the south coast of England, and it was fairly successful, but when it reproduced with uh, a resident um, poultry British species of Spartina, in fact, their offspring, which uh, then undertook genetic changes again, um, was, became Spartina anglica that first spread round the coastline of Britain and was extremely successful in why people had introduced these plants in the first instance in stabilizing um, intertidal muds. And it's now spread back around the world. And um, there's a Spartina around here, I believe, um, which some of the rare rails are actually nesting in. So we've got to accept that change in biodiversity is about gains as well as losses. And it always has been. And when we think about when something turns up new in a new location and thereby changes the system a bit, to what extent do we really mind about that change? When is it really causing a long-term problem versus a short-time perception that the system is changing and that we don't like change? So we can't go back, we can't unpick the planet. And I would urge you to fight what might be considered genuine loss, the termination perhaps of species that can no longer be available to contribute to the world's ecosystems in the future, but not to fight change per se, because that is the way that the biological world responds to in environmental perturbation. Nature didn't stop when we turned up. Ecological and evolutionary processes went into overdrive because we changed the environment so fast. So you can wake up now. And thank you very much for your attention. And I'll just leave you with uh, what I call my shameless plug. Um, but, but also uh, three questions. But there are many questions related. Are new species worse than old ones? Are we happy? Do we think this is a good idea that we are actually might potentially generating a new acceleration of diversity? And should we actually think about trying to promote speciation? We want to try and stop extinction. Is it as legitimate for us to think about generating new species that would be useful to us? I bet every single one of you today has eaten one of those human-created species. Many of our major crops are new species that have come into existence. So new species are not bad per se. We just need to go and think about what are the circumstances in which we wish to encourage this new diversity versus try and maintain what we had previously. So thank you very much indeed for your patience. Not surprised that the first question that Kevin Kelly picked up is from Morgan, who asks, um, we tend to think of biodiversity as inherently valuable. Is this new biodiversity, is, is it as, quote, valuable as the old? And is the number of species the right metric to look at? Okay, so is it as valuable? Well, given my answer, what I said right at the end about the number of crop plants, like wheat, for example, that we eat, species per species, on average, the new species are more valuable to us than the old ones. Well, now, 
in terms, in terms of nutritional input, mm -hmm. and so, so a lot of these new species, so mm. if you, not all of them are truly new species, but if you rock, go through the world's 100 um, uh, top crops, mm. a really substantial percentage of them, I won't try and quote the percentage off my top of my head, but it's well over half of them are um, actually at least partial hybrids between two or more um, previously existing species. How about in terms of, you mentioned resilience, and I would add evolvability. Um, since we're looking for species to be able to prosper, uh, we're talking about a sort of a rich ecosystem. Are these richer ecosystems in the same terms of richness we would have regarded them as rich before? Are they, uh, well, wrong they're different. Nature doesn't mm -hmm. do value judgments. We do. Right. So in terms um, of the value judgments that we have had, it sounds like you're actually trying to shift the values. I'm, I'm trying to... Yes, I am trying to shift the values because if we look at that, think of that time sequence in my whole, mm -hmm. um, that... Each time a new ecosystem has come into existence, mm -hmm. at least five times there, um, the humans that were around at the time interacted mm. with and used resources from that ecosystem with that particular set of species. Mm -hmm. And so it's, there's nothing, therefore, intrinsically less valuable about a new mixture of species and a new ecosystem than an old one. It is entirely possible that a new ecosystem will be less useful to us as humans, and it is entirely possible that it will be more useful to us. On the whole over the planet's uh, surface, we have made... Uh, this is not a biodiversity conservation thing, but uh, argument, but on the whole, we have made ecosystems more amenable to our use. More of the world's land surface is producing mm. food for us, for example. So that we can make things, though, better or worse from a human perspective as a whole, and very often when we make a place better from one human perspective, we make it worse from another one. So we have many choices about food production versus um, some other, um, let's say, uh, a, a national park versus food production. Well, mm -hmm. we as humans would like some balance between these things. Both of these are important to us. But the Which fact that they're altered mm -hmm. systems, all of them, from the national park with climate change, etc., through to the agricultural system, mm -hmm. doesn't then, by definition, make them worse, in let's my another, human opinion. Yeah, let's try another metric, because in a sense, uh, your message is, you know, there's sort of this new uh, subfield of ecology of novel ecosystems. And your message is basically, it's novel all the way back. <laughs> it's always been novel. Yes, that's right. It's <laughs> partly novel all the way back, mm -hmm. and that the historic depths of our altering of the planet surface is much longer mm -hmm. than most of us recognize. So I think the story is now pretty familiar to a large number of people of how many large vertebrates, particularly large mammals, have been exterminated by humans. I think at the last count it was something like 178 or something. But, um, and these are of the really big vertebrates. 
and these would have completely transformed the vegetation. So, of course, mm -hmm. had we been here 10,000 years, well, say 15,000 years ago, had we been here today and there had been no humans here, there would be elephants, relatives mm -hmm. of various types, right around us here. Just go to the Labria um, tar pits to see the sort of fauna you would have. So the fact that we removed this meant that 10,000 years ago, the vegetation started to develop without these large animals. Go to Africa, you see what elephants do to the vegetation. Well, that was happening right over the world. So the vegetation that we had everywhere was already altered by humans. And then we'd done all sorts of other things. So we shouldn't think that until very recently we were living in this world, pristine world that had not been altered by humans. The reality is we are today changing at a rapid rate and sometimes alarmingly we are changing things at a rapid rate, but we are changing an all, a system that has already been changed by humans, not something that sort of was natural out there before a pre-human existence. So I wonder, the other metric that comes to mind is, uh, you know, more life can be measured in terms of more kinds of creatures, more species. More life can be measured in terms of biomass, just there's more living stuff going on. Uh, there's also bioabundance, which is you're looking at the, just the population level of certain species that you care about. Yeah. Does increasing biodiversity generally lead to more, more biomass, and does it generally lead to what you might call more bioabundance? So the, the jury is to some extent out, I mm. think, on some of those questions. It must be different in different the, places. Yes. Um, the... The key importance of biological diversity... So when you do experiments and you put one species in a system, let's say it's one species of plant and you grow it under certain conditions and you vary those conditions, you find that one species of plant kind of does okay, it produces a certain amount. You add two, three, four, five species, the productivity of the vegetation tends mm. to go up. But once you get to dozens of species, then it kind of plateaus out. Mm -hmm. So to some extent, we've got more species than we need. But where you find that lots of species matter is when the system changes, because they provide the resilience, mm -hmm. not through any kind of great global biological pre-think. That's not how nature works, of course. But the very fact that there are vast numbers of species there mm -hmm. means that however the system changes, it increases the likelihood that some of those species are capable of dealing with the new situation. Mm -hmm. And that is why I emphasize, going back to the first question, is why I emphasize the species quite a lot, though it's shorthand for genetic diversity within species, a number of species, number of genera, families, etc., of animals and plants. Because the more different types of things we've still got somewhere in the global system, might not be within the geographic area where they used to live, but as long as they exist somewhere, then they're the building blocks from which new change can develop. And we don't know how humans are going to have modified the planet in the next, say, thousand years, but we do know that pretty much all of the biological world is going to be comprised of the descendants of today's species, even if mm. some of them are hybrids, etc., and some of them have evolved, but they're still going to be descendants of today's things. So keeping those species in existence m maximizes that, in my thinking anyway, that very long-term resilience, mm -hmm. whereas 
if you think about modern ecosystem services, the modern benefits we get from a patch of land, well, that might be provided by one species of crop just mm. as well as by uh, thousands of plants. I want to focus on <clears throat> the difference between ocean islands and continents. As you mentioned, the 10% loss of bird species. Yep. And my sense is that most of those bird species were ocean island species, yep. seabirds, basically. And uh, so what has been the loss of bird species on the continents, Eurasia and the okay. Americas? Okay, so, so some of them have been seabirds, but a high proportion of the species that have died out from oceanic islands were actually terrestrial species, mm. but their worlds were very small. Mm. Um, so the oceanic islands... So to get to an oceanic island, you need to fly a long distance if you're a bird. And, of course, that's how the original ancestors of the Hawaiian honey creepers arrived in the Hawaiian islands. They were regular finches from uh, uh, eastern Asia, uh, close mm. to the uh, rose finches, and they colonised the Hawaiian islands, and then they evolved into a great diversity of different things. Amazing. But nearly all of the species of bird that have been documented as having gone extinct or deduced must have been from analysis of fossils, nearly all of them were these island birds. And for this, from the surviving island birds, we know that there are critical traits associated with them which meant they were susceptible. Well, first of all, many of them were terrestrial and flightless or nearly flightless because they'd evolved into an island. They didn't find that there were rats and cats and primates like humans around, and so the ability to fly and escape from predators was less important. They became more and more sedentary. And of course, then when humans and cats and rats, etc., did turn up, then they were sitting ducks, um, um, and, um, and so, so they were susceptible to this arrival of predators. The other thing is that very often that, and this is the key problem in the Hawaiian Islands at the moment, is that mosquitoes weren't present, and even though every so often bird malaria would have arrived through migrant birds arriving in the Hawaiian Islands, the vectors were not present. So maintaining a defence against a disease involves some metabolic cost just like flying does. And so eventually most of these island birds ended up evolving not to be disease resistant. Mm -hmm. When the vectors and the diseases arrived, they were susceptible. Mm -hmm. So these island species have evolved, if you like, they're a subset of the biological world. And when they mixed up again with the rest of the world's species, they died out because they were effectively not capable of dealing with continental predators and diseases. Mm -hmm. And you could say, well, that's a terrible shame. It would be a lovely, it's lovely to have a few examples of these things, at least from a scientific and a cultural perspective, to enjoy. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the future of biological world of birds, you know, birds are good at flying, and virtually all birds on the continents are disease resistant. Mm -hmm. And that is why they've been, this particular group of dinosaurs has been so successful for the last 55 million years. And and it's going to continue to be the case. It just turned out that mammals were better at doing things on the ground than the birds, and they've exterminated them from Oceanic Island. So could I unpick the world and return all of these species? Well, actually, I would. I think it would be fascinating to see all of them. Mm -hmm. But do I think it's changing the... on? 
time scale of millions of years, do I think it's changing the trajectory of bird evolution in any important way? Well, no, I don't, because I think that it's going to be the continental birds that have these capabilities that are going to be the future. That's where the future descendants of birds are going to come from. So, Dove Sachs says the plant population, the plant species on places like New Zealand has doubled, and that's probably yeah. true of, of many ocean islands. And it sounds like the animal species have been introduced. I mean, you go to Hawaii and you stay in a hotel, you hear all kinds of birds. They happen to be the Midwestern birds, I reckon. Oh, there's the robin, there's a cardinal, and these various creatures. And the honey creepers are way up in the top yep. of the mountains where nobody goes because that's where they can get away from the mosquitoes yep. that are killing them with the yep. avian malaria. So what just happened? The biodiversity of Hawaii and New Zealand and these other islands has increased. Places like Ascension Island have gone from almost nothing to quite yep. a lot of introduced species. But the overall Pacific biodiversity, if you included all the various islands and all the various endemic species they had, that sort of oceanic diversity of island species has gone down. Now, yeah. it sounds like what we're pointing out is that the species that went down were pretty defenseless species. They're not continental species. They're not global species. They're not, yeah, that's right. But sometimes they just have a specific defect. Mm -hmm. Now, many environmentalists are a bit nervous when we start talking about new genetic technologies and so on. Yeah, but if you want that. to save the Hawaiian, mm -hmm. if you want to save the Hawaiian honeycreepers, well, it's all right, guys. There's 10,000-odd species of bird that are resistant to malaria. They've all got genes for malaria <laughs> resistant. Well, I'd get a captive population of Hawaiian honeycreepers, of many species as one can, and pop these resistance genes on these. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with them otherwise as bird species, these honeycreepers. It's just that they can't deal with this disease. Yeah, um, it would can... be more of a challenge mm. to turn a, um, uh, turn a kiwi into an albatross. That is a, that's certainly the case. Ooh, there's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of the general trends, what I'm hearing is that the species that are, in a sense, kind of dead ends, just, they're really good locally, but as soon as they get mm. into global context, yep. it's yep. all over for them. Yep. But there are these global species, this uh, human Anthropocene Pangaea is one continent that you've made, the species that we're spreading that are prospering, sometimes against our best efforts to keep them from doing so, are evolutionarily very robust. Yeah. So in a sense, the general resilience and robustness of life on Earth has gone up. You could argue that. We, we yeah, got rid I of think the ones I've... who couldn't handle it. And the ones who can handle it are doing fine, thank you. And they're multiplying. Yeah. Well, I, now that's good news. I think, I think it is good news. Uh -huh. I'm going to add one caveat. I'm going to shoot myself in the foot here. Um, and my caveat is that that's under current conditions. And I think when we're talking about island versus continental birds, mm -hmm. I think that on the whole, that's quite clear. Mm -hmm. But some of the species are very successful at the moment. If humans change the way that we manage the world very comp into a, you know, maybe in a few centuries' time, we're going to be getting our food in very different ways. Mm -hmm. as we dis we're discussing, we may be growing our meat in factories rather than having animals out in fields mainly and, and so on. And so 
the things that are very successful now and appear robust may actually decline again. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think having so many additional species out there is an advantage because mm -hmm. that provides opportunities for whatever new conditions we create that something will take advantage of them. So but the question everyone has, and here's one from Tom Maloney, does the pace of atmospheric change, global carbon, nitrogen, and so on, matter in terms of overall ecological processes driving selection pressures? And this is an area you focus on. How yeah. big a deal is climate change in all this? It's an, it's an enormous challenge. Um, we're going to go, even for the most modest uh, climate change scenarios, we're going to go back to conditions which on average across the planet, we won't have seen for probably three million years. Mm -hmm. The carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is probably um, already higher than it's been for that length of time and is headed to be the highest for at least 10 and probably 20 or so million years. Well, carbon dioxide might sound, obviously it acidifies the ocean and there's all the coral reefs we're concerned about, so that's, mm -hmm. so that's uh, a major transformative thing. And think of it, every plant on the Earth, the apart from a few parasitic ones, is, is using carbon dioxide in its photosynthesis. That's, and so the relative ability of every plant species on the planet to grow, every plant individual on the planet, mm -hmm. has been changed already, and it's going to continue to be changed. So this so is an enormous perturbation to the system. Mm -hmm. And this, so we don't really know exactly how the system is going to respond. But the caveat there, but though, so, so there are genuine concerns, and I'm entirely signed up to the fact that we should minimise our greenhouse gas emissions. And, and, and if it's going to happen, that we make it as slow as possible. But the reality is that if you look at diversity across the planet's surface, the, there's higher diversity in places that are both hotter and um, often particularly places that are moister as well. Mm. And as the temperature is going up, and on average, not everywhere, I know that California has big droughts, etc., but on average, precipitation on the planet is going up because when it gets hotter, more water evaporates mm. from the ocean and it comes down somewhere. And so with a slightly wetter and decidedly warmer planet surface, the expectation, but not yet demonstrated really, mm. the expectation is that diversity will increase slightly at a planetary level. We certainly have evidence that is happening in quite substantial parts of the temperate zone, but it's not yet possible to say that this is a truly global phenomenon. So it's so this is a kind of, it's an uncomfortable reality, <laughs> but so simultaneously you can have the average diversity increasing, mm -hmm. but you can still have loads of species that are restricted to the Sierra Nevada or somewhere dying out. Mm -hmm. And so you can, these two things are simultaneously possible that the average local diversity can go up, but that the total number of species on the earth could come down as a result of climate change. That is my expectation. Um, and so, given that species can't come, local diversity can change up and down rather easily, mm. and species can't come back rather easily, I would suggest we go for a low carbon option rather than a high one. Here, here. So, it sounds like, I mean, one of the things you're pointing out is all about rates. So, rate of climate change 
uh, as against rate of speciation, let's say. You know, how rapidly can these various plants and animals and uh, microbes and whatnot evolve to manage the rate of, of climate change that we're bringing about? Uh, is evolution faster than, than human-caused climate change or not? Um, well, there's already... Uh, I can't answer your question. Mm -hmm. Um, because we have particular examples, but we don't have enough examples that we could quantify what rates are higher than which. So we kind of do in some senses that on the land at least, mm -hmm. the rate at which species are spreading towards the poles mm -hmm. at the pole width. So imagine the geographic distribution of a species, and it's got one edge of the geographic distribution is closer to the pole, the the cold edge, if you like, and then the hot edge that's close to the equator. Empirically, what we're seeing in quite large numbers of species, um, both um, insects and vertebrates, we're seeing that the northern edge or the poleward edge is spreading towards the pole faster than we're getting the retreat hmm. at the southern edge slightly, which is consistent with this idea mm -hmm. that average local diversity would tend to go up slightly. Now, what we're seeing is that the northern margins that are spreading in the north temperate zone, which are spreading towards the poles, we are seeing evolution as species move. Mm -hmm. um, because any individual that colonizes further north successfully is likely, because it's a good colonist in some way, is likely to be a non-random member of the population. So most of the species that people actually examined in detail are showing some evolutionary changes at their expanding polewards boundary. The fact that we've got any retreats indicates that those populations at, that have died out mm -hmm. have not evolved fast enough to keep up with the changes, because effectively local mm -hmm. extinction or species extinction you can think of as a failure of evolution to move fast enough to keep up with the new conditions. So, so both of these things are true. Think, some things are evolving fast enough to keep, mm -hmm. keep up. There are clearly places within the distributions of species that are not keeping up. Mm -hmm. And can I say what percentage are keeping up and what aren't? No. But no, but no biologist in the world can, I think, give a, a clear answer on that yet. What are conservationists doing with your message? Well, I think conservationists, so mixed feelings. Mm -hmm. um, um, so uh, I've, had, I've had a little bit of uh, one or two sort of uh, hate messages, ex I think quite exclusively. Pretty much, I, I like to think, I might be quite wrong, but I, I like to think exclusively from people who haven't actually read the book. Um, 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 in fact, it led to one famous conversation over a dinner, uh, uh, over dinner uh, which involved one of the chief scientists of uh, one of the UK's leading conservation organisations. Um, and we'd been, uh, I, I had wanted to try and sort of close it down because it seemed a bit rude to be having this argument. Uh, well, it was getting a little bit heated about non-native species um, across half a dozen other people. And being a polite British person, I didn't think we should be doing that. Um, and, um, and, and eventually being, in fact, in truth, completely impolite, I said, well, why don't you just read the bloody book? Um, because actually I try to present 
the fact that we have got losses from mm. various sources, but we have also got gains. And we should take these two things in consideration simultaneously. And if it is legitimate for us to stop declines in diversity, why isn't it also legitimate for us to foster increases in diversity wherever that diversity comes from? So where from? do you see that playing so, out sort of practically? I mean, the wonderful bottom line was fight loss, not look, change. Yes. And what is that, how does that play out in terms of actual conservation on the ground? Well, I think... That conservation conservationists are accepting uh, that, but conservationists, mm -hmm. most conservationists are now and, and uh, are accepting that we are living in a weird period of rapid change. Right, right. We can't wish it away. But the problem is, if you do away with your baseline, which is deeply flawed, but if you mm -hmm. do away with that, how do you measure change? I was what are say, your the, goals? The word conservation is itself conservative. Yeah, it's saying, let's it's, keep everything the same. It is. There's, it there's is no really liberal conservation. So I think, radicals of conservation. Okay. <laughs> so I think there's quite a lot of people saying, okay, well, we can carry on doing this for a while. Mm -hmm. And they know that in a century or so, it's not going to be defensible what they're doing. Right. But they don't know what the alternative is. And, and I'm arguing... And actually, part of the reason I got into the whole of this thing in the first instance is that I saw more and more resource and effort of volunteers being spent on trying to keep things as they were when it's clear the moment you thought on a timescale beyond a few decades that ultimately it was going to fail and it was going to be wasted effort. And that, that then is the real challenge. Mm -hmm. How do we set our goals? Now, for me... I like to think that we should think, uh, in the modern politics, this, uh, maybe I should keep my mouth shut. Um, uh, but, but the challenge is, in the modern world, where the biological systems are dynamic, we have to think on an increasingly large scale, international scale. It's more of a problem in Europe, actually, than it is... Uh, here because um, we're split into a um, ridiculous number of countries. Um, but mm. in... So, because each country sees its own species as its problem, wow. and, and Spain doesn't want to give Britain a population of Iberian lynx, the most endangered species of cat, arguably, on the planet, because mm. it's their lynx. The Brits don't want the Spanish lynx because it didn't occur in Britain before, nasty foreign lynxes. Um, actually, it did about 150,000 years ago, its ancestors, but um, they've forgotten that. Um, so, but, so what Brits are going to do is to reintroduce, if they possibly can, there's a whole group of people working on it now, to reintroduce the Eurasian lynx um, which, um, and spend a lot of money on doing this um, when actually it's about the most widespread and least endangered cat species on the planet. Now, for me, given that we're living with dynamic systems, mm -hmm. why not put your effort and money into mm. the species that's genuinely endangered mm -hmm. rather than imagining putting links back in the home counties is going to make the world somehow good again? <laughs> I, I I think there's the, the beginnings of the 10,000-year time frame, which is one we like around here, for conservation basically says drop the word. 
that what we were talking about is life enhancers. Yeah. And uh, we've sort of got a pretty good idea of what we mean by life. We're still figuring out what we mean by enhance or serve, servers, life servant, stewards, hey. Uh, you know, it's in the Bible. There's a, the term that is, was used about what Indians did in this state uh, was tending the wild. There's a wonderful book called Tending the Wild where basically the native population here before Europeans showed up gardened the whole state and it was incredibly rich both for them and for mm -hmm. many other species that were here. So this tending the wild, life enhancing perspective seems to gain the long-term value that you're pushing for through basically taking an evolutionary perspective rather than just an ecological perspective. I mean, those, they're obviously all one. But thinking like an evolutionist as well as an ecologist seems to change what we mean by conservation. Is that your view? I definitely think evolution is not in the minds of most conservationists who tend to think it operates too slowly for it to be relevant. And you're but, coming along and saying they're wrong and about that's, that. Well, yes. <laughs> um, but you go, and, go and ask any doctor about rate of evolution and the bugs that are becoming resistant to things. Ask any agriculturalist about the rate of evolution and how long a particular herbicide or insecticide lasts mm. before there are populations of species of pests which are able to live in this environment. And in the agricultural sector, they reckon that new resistant varieties, for example, um, and new insecticides, herbicides, are likely to have a shelf life of around about a decade or two mm -hmm. before there are enough things that are resistant that it's no longer, they have to have replaced it. And so, so if you think, okay, this is a particular situation and it's clear when evolution effectively allows a species to live in an environment where it otherwise couldn't, in other words, where there's a particular chemical laid down. Now, if you step back and think, what are we doing to the planet's surface as a whole? Well, we've modified it absolutely everywhere. We've modified mm -hmm. the atmosphere, dot, 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 climate. And it is absolutely inevitable that everything is pretty much evolving. Mm -hmm. um, because every population of every species, apart from a few clonal things, contains genetic variation. It is extraordinarily unlikely that every individual in all of these populations is equally successful or unsuccessful under the new conditions as the environment changes. So more or less, almost by definition, populations are going to be evolving in response to the human modification to the environment, direct and indirect. And what we don't, we don't have a good, I can't draw your frequency mm -hmm. distribution of the rates of these evolutions because we don't know. Mm -hmm. But what we have now at the current state of knowledge is we have a large sample of examples where evolution has taken place 
both in the heavily modified the seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the long now foundation fisheries where you can fish see high quality videos of the talks online uh, by joining long now as a member at long now which we complain and worry about through things like taylor's checker spot etc um butterflies in my own meadow at home where we know that they have involved responses to human changes to the environment in a way that um, looks um, is, is clearly got the signature of humanity in it. Now, if we go back to your nice example of the original population here and uh, the human population that came into this part of the world, and, and I'll try and choose my language carefully here, um, but I don't mean to uh, offend anywhere. I'm trying to describe something as happened. Is that first of all, the humans came in and they exterminated the largest beasts. They were capable of doing this. Yeah, you and point they, out in your book, what I hadn't so understood is not just then humans they, with the spears so they and ended dogs, up, so they had traps. They had traps for these yeah, big animals. Yeah. I didn't know that. I think it depended in the in the region, yeah. yeah so yeah, so it was wonderful America. going to, to going and seeing some of these traps in South America that they use that the American uh, that the um, sort of Aboriginal populations there still have knowledge of, and and it's just amazing. Well, this sort of bed of spikes to catch uh, large cats was pretty frightening actually, um, but. Think of, they've exterminated the largest animals right. and they have been hunting, gathering. And as you say, then you get this sort of system that, um, that um, becomes sort of somewhat stabilised. Mm -hmm. And you described it in a fairly idealised mm -hmm. way. That's mm -hmm. how the system ended up. And, but originally, it probably, it would have taken quite a long time for all of those species to assemble in their new distributions with the management as it's going on. Now, I was, whilst you were saying that, I was thinking, funnily enough, if there's that tower, tower over there, wherever it is, um, that, uh, um, and I walked up there through people's gardens, this is where I was seeing hummingbirds and all sorts of other things, and lots of exotic flowers, and this is the new biological world. I sometimes think that in a few centuries we're going to be conserving suburban gardens because they're going to be very unusual collections of species. But, but the collections of species that you talk about, this sort of idealised way, way of humans living with nature, mm -hmm. this came into existence gradually as the species that could live in those places mm -hmm. gradually arrived and became part of these new biological communities. But you shouldn't forget that when then they got horses and then they got guns, mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. changed the way they hunted. And right. this has happened all over the world. So very often these idealised systems living in harmony with nature, the moment you give people an additional um, technology... Um, they use it, and they end up doing all sorts of things that we might then regard as a degradation of the system. Mm -hmm. So the bizarre thing that we now have to do is to contemplate. We are now, if you like, sufficiently well-versed in the entire planet and how it is changing that we can start to think about what is this future world we want. We're going to have many more technologies and things we could do to the planetary surface than we actually want to do. And it is the choices between these alternative futures that we're going to have to end up making.
And although many conservationists are upset by some of the things that I'm saying, but not others, to my mind, we have to have this discussion because there's no point thinking of ourselves as just the destroyer. We're part of the world system and we are going to continue to be the part of the world system for as long as we care about it until our extermination, whenever that might be. And because we are part of that system, we therefore have a choice of these futures. And we may choose some ways and not others. But thinking about how the system actually operates mm -hmm. is essential if we are going to make long-term choices that are not throwing away our environmental dollar on, on approaches to conservation that in the long term might fail. I think this is optimistic, because you're describing how life is blending in with human behavior. Yes. And it sounds like the future is human behavior I, learning to blend in with life. Yes, that's right. And, and I imagine that pretty much all human societies actually have some degree despite our capacity to destroy things. Mm. Most human societies, most religions, uh, I'm a religious myself, but most religions have embedded within them a sense, some sense of nature and mm. caring for it, even if actually the practice of that human population has been to destroy much more than it protected. And because this caring exists, wherever, or enthusiasm for interest, wherever it comes from, whether it's part of our evolutionary history or whatever, wherever it comes from, it does mean that human societies do have some sense of caring about nature. And very often the arguments about what nature does for us that has become common parlance in conservation, so-called ecosystem goods and, and services, that, but actually this often kind of misses the point because most of the people who are arguing about the great benefits of um, nature for humanity, they're doing it actually because they're trying to, they're trying to persuade financiers who might not actually care about the environment. But the reason that they're doing this work <laughs> and they're trying to persuade the financiers is not because of the economic benefits or, their, or the value to humanity. If you look at talk to these people and they care about nature. Actually, they're by and large doing it just because they love the stuff. Here, here. <laughs> That's the future. Thank you. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. You can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.